Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Well, 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 what can I say? We are right at the edge of the special day, the day being Halloween. I hope these scary stories put you in the mood for the best day of the year. Let's not wait any longer, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a veteran demon hunter. Yesterday, I encountered my first Class 5. Written by Jackie Vincent So, demons. Yeah, they're real and no, they are definitely not the big red guys with the long horns and the goat hooves. Well, most of the time. I've been in the demon hunting business for the last 15 or so years and that makes me practically ancient by the standards of the industry. I'm what we would call an industry professional, and I'm the one they send out to handle the ones that are too big for the new people, but too small to call in the task forces. I'm sort of the middle management of the whole thing. Which, for the average woman in her 30s might be a little weird, but I make it work. They aren't particularly picky about who decides to work for them when all is said and done. They mostly just need a few warm bodies to keep the demon population in check. Who's they, you might be asking? Well, they're a little like the occult version of the police. They have a bunch of agents that mostly sit around in an office, filling out paperwork, and occasionally they go off to kill a bunch of nasty little denizens of Hades. And yeah, that's where they're from. We asked them, and they were pretty vocal about it. Well, at least the ones that can speak. That's what demons are, by the way. Creatures from Hades that typically have a nasty craving for human flesh, brains, or any other part of the human body that their type happens to be fond of. The flesh crawlers, for example, are partial to human skin. And the heart wrenchers are fond of hearts, believe it or not. All of them within the category look different. But they always prefer one part of the human body more than anything. Except for the exceptions. The exceptions are the class sixes and up, who eat pretty much anything and everything including souls in case they needed to be even more terrifying. But most demons are nowhere near that powerful, so it's a more minor issue than you might think. I mostly deal with class threes with the very occasional class four. That's what I thought I was dealing with yesterday, a class four. They're incredibly rare, with maybe one or two remaining in the continental US at any one time. What makes them a class 4 is the system that the Oodle, that being the group that I work for, the occult operations and demonic liaison department, normally shortened to Oodle, uses to classify its demons, size, intelligence, and abilities. A class 1 might be as big as a dog and as smart as your average potato. But the jump in each class is staggering. A class 2 might be as big as a bison if it's not particularly smart. A class 4 is when the demonic abilities start showing up. I got a call at my desk at around midnight and yes, we work at nighttime. That's the time when demons show up, okay? It's not our fault. I was filing a report about a recent flesh ripper that I had had the pleasure of dealing with when my phone rang. I picked up the phone and heard the monotone voice of the receptionist on the other end, which probably meant that she was one of the taken. That certainly didn't bode well. 
Have I reached Agent Swallow? She asked. You have, I replied, while internally cursing my call sign. They gave it to me because I was the only woman in the local office. I remembered to find Alex and kick him a few times because of it. Not that he had been responsible or anything, but he certainly enjoyed making fun of me for it, which was reason enough for him to receive a good kicking. There's a report of a class 4 approximately 30 miles from your location. She said in the same eerie monotone, You must eliminate it. That last bit was punctuated by the more than a little abrupt ending of the call. The take-and-call operators rarely waited for any sort of confirmation from the agents that they spoke to, and there was a bit of superstition around the local office that they only ever called when they were sending you to your death. Otherwise, they would have given you a human operator instead. I was a little worried at the idea of facing a class 4, especially one nearby without my partner here with me. Alex was a rat, but he was one of the most competent and experienced agents in our branch. And when there was a class 4 nearby, we normally worked on it together. But Alex was nowhere to be found today. And most of us at the office assumed that he had had one too many drinks the night before, and he decided to skip work for the day. That meant that I would have to deal with a class 4 by myself for the first time. I moved down to the ground floor before heading out. The office of the more experienced workers like myself were on the third floor of the building, with the first two floors being made up of fresh workers straight off their first or second job which was necessary given the incredibly high turnover rate at most Udo locations. The basement of the building was blocked off from the elevator, and it wasn't available to anyone else except the task forces and the branch managers. It was left for the holding cells and their occupants, which were mostly the friendlier demons who wanted somewhere to stay, and a few speaking varieties who the head office felt were important. Read. They could torture for information on locations for high-class demons. At our branch, we also had a singular named demon. Those were the guys that the head office thought were so dangerous that they needed a code name and specific restraint conditions. Ours was called Horse Rider. I had no clue why and I was nowhere near high enough on the chain of command to find out. I made my way out of the building to my company-designated car, an old Toyota that I sometimes thought was more dangerous than the demons that I hunted with. It was covered in dents and scratches from all the action that it had seen, including a recent confrontation with a Class 3 sight-taker that left it without its left mirror. It was also possible that some of the red paint wasn't strictly paint by the general definition. It was hard to tell, though, so I could get away with it. No one wanted to visit the cleaners. A shiver down my spine was enough to confirm that notion. Inside the car was a screen that I had used to find the demon which had marked its current location, category, and class. It was a black iPad-looking thing that was just behind the gear shift, and I made the whole car look not unlike a taxi or an Uber. Displayed on the screen will always be a map of the surrounding location, the demon's class and category, as well as any special abilities in the case of class 4s and above. One look at the screen and my heart fell. 
It had the class all right and even the category. A class four, Bonar, was a bad day in anyone's books. They almost always had harpoon-like hooks with claws that could make even a butcher jealous. They were easily one of the most dreaded categories to deal with. Only vampires, no, not like literal vampires, they just like blood. And builders are more colloquial hated. The builders like to take people's fingers and toenails, often while the victim was still alive. Nails like the construction kind, hence the name. While the category and class were bad, it was what wasn't on there that really topped it off for me. In the section labeled a special ability, there was absolutely nothing. This meant that either the creature didn't have an ability at all, which would make it so obscenely massive and smart that it seemed unlikely, or that the ability hadn't yet been discovered. That meant that I was probably a scouting agent. It would be my job to go in there, get a good look at the ability, and send the information to HQ, and then die horribly while the demon removes and then eats my bones. Hooray. It wasn't a long drive to get there, and at least by the standards of the job, but it was one made in silence. Taking on a class 4 alone wasn't likely to go too well, and I knew it, especially if I was just sent there to die. The location pulled me up to an abandoned farm just outside of town. It was so cliche that I was tempted to believe this might be some elaborate plot by some crackpot at the office if it weren't for the silence. You see, there's almost always some noise out there. Wind, crickets, birds, anything like that. But there was nothing, not a single peep. The air was so still that it felt stale, and it cast a stillness onto the grass and overgrown fields with it. It's so subtly unnerving to see grass so still. It's an unconscious sort of thing. I figured, it makes it look fake, dead. It also meant that there was a demon around. It's one of the signs of demonic manifestation that we're taught to recognize in order to properly perform our duty. Inside my head, I went through the checklist just to be sure. No sulfur smell, that could be bad. The air was a little hot, bad. My mind wasn't clouded at least, so that's good. The sky was a little tinged with red, that was pretty bad. All the signs pointed to a class 4, and a pretty bad one at that. It probably meant that it had manifested its ability and would probably start seeking out humans within the next few days. I let out a long and somber sigh. I was probably going to die but first, the part that every oodle agent hates more than anything, looking for the thing. Death would come in good time, but finding the thing came first. I had its general location, and it was more than likely on the farm somewhere, but it could still be almost anywhere. Hopefully, there was a barn nearby. I started off by gathering my equipment in full. Since I was a little on the small side, that mostly included guns. Handguns, shotguns, even a rifling case. All of them were loaded with the requisite holy ammunition that you needed when taking on a demon. Additionally, I had some holy water and a few holy artifacts. All this holy stuff was just anything that Oodle could get blessed by a member of the faith. Technically speaking, that could be any faith at all, and it often included those who were not 
strictly speaking, real religious believers. So it was that that I held in my hands a handgun with bullets blessed by Frank, the local subway worker and a faithful member of the Sectively Great Sandwich. I figured that the most likely place the demon would have gone would be a barn. It wasn't a strict rule of demons that they would always be found at the most dramatically appropriate place in the area, but it held true more often than any agent wanted to admit. This was especially the case in regards to the higher class demons, who were smart enough to seek out sheltered in dark areas to do all their evil demon stuff, like eating human skin, or bones in this case. I almost felt lighter thinking of some poor class 4 demon wandering aimlessly in a completely open field without anywhere to enact its blood rituals. Still, my sympathy for the creatures didn't extend far enough for that, and honestly I was still a little upset that I was probably going to die. It was something that every agent was prepared for, but few scouts ever actually realized that they were scouts. Oodle normally sent out the fresh agents to do this sort of thing, but in the case of a class 4, it seemed like they weren't sure a newbie would survive long enough. I would have applauded the practicality of it if I weren't nearly pissing myself with fear. You might think that I'd be used to being this scared. 15 years isn't a short amount of time after all, but I'll let you in on a little secret. Consciously going to fight the denizens of Hades, who you know for a fact will be attempting to eat your bones in the next 10 to 15 minutes, and never quite loses its impact, especially on the bladder. Instead of following that blessed instinct, I followed the more learned thoughts given to me by over a decade of experience. Every knife, gun, and religious relic that I had on hand was within easy and convenient reach. I went through my mental checklist once more before finally heading toward the shape I assumed to be the barn. It stood tall among the fields and cloaked all of its surroundings in even more complete darkness than the night provided. The moon's brightness didn't penetrate into the domain of the demon. Even Mother Nature had little sway in the face of a creature of Hades. I was more conscious of my footsteps as I finally reached the barn. It loomed higher and wider with my approach. Were barns seriously that big? Once I was close enough to finally make out the iconic rust-red paint of the thing, it felt like that I would go deaf every time one of my feet made contact with the ground. I was hyper aware of my breathing because of that old irrational fear that somehow some way the demon would hear it and it would claw me down in the spot it was too ingrained to overcome. Add that to the stillness of the surroundings and it felt like a miracle the demon hadn't come out to rip me open and relieve my skeleton of the burden of my flesh. Where the thick darkness created by the shadows of the barn's shape was undeniably dark. The gaping maw that was the barn's entrance looked to be an entrance to Hades itself. It was a darkness so complete that even my torch wouldn't have gained any purchase. It was like looking into a pool of ink, and it felt like if I were to take a single step into it, I would be swallowed whole. So, with one last goodbye to my ever-fleeting will to live, I stepped inside the demon's lair. I was right. It was the demon's lair. It was fairly easy to tell despite the darkness. Even without my eyesight, I could smell blood. 
It was like when crossing the threshold I was hit by a wave of metallic smelling death. This was the final and most important confirmation of a demon's presence. Whatever is inside the domain is theirs to control. Only so long as I had the religious relics on my person was I immune to that effect. That meant it could conceal the smell of blood outside of the barn and in theory it could have instantly removed my skeleton as well. I remembered to thank Frank and his holy sandwich related wisdom if I lived to see tomorrow. The darkness was still the most immediate threat for the time being. The smell was an important confirmation, and given the absence of rot, it likely meant that the demon had only set up shop recently. I shuffled around in the hay-encrusted floors of the barn for a few seconds while I tried in vain to get my bearings. I had hoped my eyesight might adjust enough to start making out shapes once I got inside but I couldn't even see my hand inches away from my face. That meant that I would continue penguin waddling myself toward my general approximation of the center of the building. I did my best to follow the smell of blood since I hoped the smell might be strongest where the demon had made its home, but it was equally as pervasive in every direction. As I waddled through the hay, I could practically feel my nerves reaching their limit. Something about being unable to see any attacks that might be coming. The thought of being torn apart at any second by a demon that I can't see, it fills me with dread. Every time I shuffle my feet through the hay, I pause again. Was that a sound? It felt like every step carried me closer and closer to a painful and meandering death. I kept shuffling along. I finally heard it after a few minutes. A few agonizing minutes that I felt would never end. The metallic smell of blood was no more strong than, than anywhere else in the barn, so far as I could tell, but the sound of my boots hitting something wet was unmistakable. It was only a light nasally breathing coming from somewhere to my right. That was all. The creature's shape was still blessedly absent from my view, and I counted it as a small blessing. For that small time, the demon was only light breathing to my right. It wasn't a demon yet, only breathing. It couldn't last, of course, but it was still nice to imagine. After all, if I was right, this might be the last good thought that I might have. That revelation certainly scoured the experience for me. The next few moments were the bane of every demon hunter on the planet. Sneaking up on the beast was always the simplest part of the operation. Of the few things that remained constant to demons, poor awareness was one of them. It was the only thing that gave me any hope as I reached for my flashlight. My hands shook slightly as I reached for the pack tied at my waist, and I pulled out the metal cylinder. I was terrified, more viscerally than I had ever been in my life. Without Alex here to confront the demon, with the knowledge that I was completely alone, I felt so scared. It was a feeling reminiscent of being a little girl again. It was the feeling of hiding under the covers until my parents came and told me that it would be alright again. It was a feeling that I hated. The anger at being afraid bolstered me as it always did in moments like these. While I shook and fumbled to turn on the flashlight, 
The seething rage at the demon for causing me this fear carried me. I wanted to kill that demon at that moment, and it was the anger that made it possible. Click. Blindness followed immediately. The darkness made way for an all-consuming flash of light. It tore away the inky blackness like the parting of the Red Sea. In the center of that bright light, as soon as I could make out its shape, all of my fears were made manifest. Scaled red skin met matted black fur and a quadrupedal body. Hooks extended from each digit on its long, bony hands. The demon reminded me of a diseased dog as it released a screeching cry. It tore its gaze away from the light as I saw its eyes for the first time, and my anger faded in an instant. In my hand, the gun that I had reached for fell out of limp fingers. It wasn't quite the demon's ability, as would have been the preferred case. It was the acknowledgement of the inarguable fact that I was going to die in the next few seconds. Oh, I knew that I was going to die. It was almost an inevitability when I realized that I was going to be the scouting agent. But this was different. Those matte black eyes would mean nothing to anyone less experienced or knowledgeable than I was. In fact, they would have meant nothing except to those who had been accepted to these specialty training seminars given to prospective members of the Demon Elimination Task Forces. They meant the demon I faced was a class 5 or a 6. As I felt my gun fall out of my hand, it mattered little to me which it was going to be. I was dead either way, and taking on a class 4 alone, I was still the smallest bit hopeful. I still believe that maybe, just maybe, I might live through to the end of the night. As the demon finally turned to face my torch and I lifted its maw of lacerated teeth, I gave up on that notion immediately. My death was coming swiftly. I had half a mind to close my eyes and accept it immediately, but that same fear of not seeing my attack coming had stopped me from doing so. I felt so childish to wait for the demon to eat me, staring into its eyes because I was too afraid to blink, but it was all that I could do. It snarled at me before opening its jaws and I got another long look at its pointed teeth. Before I could scream my final scream, I was silenced as the demon spoke for the first time. Human. It snarled in a bestial voice. I froze up even completely. It had spoken. That was much, much worse than any immediate death would have been. If it was smart enough to speak, it is smart enough to enjoy inflicting pain. I had heard that some of the higher class demons would torture surviving task force members for days before finally finishing them off. And to bone gnar, those hooks would tear into flesh like butter. Human, it repeated. The angry voice snapped me back into the situation. The demon's face was twisted into a snarl and I could almost feel like the sweat falling off of me as it stared me down. I fumbled for a response. Something, anything. Demon. Anything but that. Anything, any single conceivable phrase but that. You dare mock me, human? It questioned. Its snarl didn't even falter as it said it. I felt its gaze on me like a deer facing down the headlights of a truck. I was too stunned at my own idiocy to even speak.
and I defaulted to the only thing that I could think of. And you dare sit there covered in blood and talk to me like I'm the one in the wrong here. Puny human, you dare. And not only that, you probably already thought of killing me, didn't you? And you want to talk to me about daring to do anything. Hold on a second, you mortal filth. You dare address me. How about you hold on for a second? I'm not the one sitting in some creepy barn waiting for people to show up so that I can eat their bones. Yeah, I'm so dead. And what the heck is all this human filth crap about? You're literally covered in blood. The demon hesitated. It looked down to see that it was indeed covered in dried blood. I was mostly still thinking through all of these 17 ways that I was probably going to be murdered and eaten. Not necessarily in that order. That was until the demon started laughing, which was an incredibly odd sound coming from the vocal cord of a wolfish creature. More disconcerting was whatever the demon found so funny. It occurred to me to try and find my gun to shoot it while it laughed. I reasoned that it wouldn't do all that much to a class 5 or 6 anyways. It would have been far more likely that I would draw my gun just to find my neck being gently removed from my spine. Um, do you feel like cluing me in on what's so funny? Yep, those are going to be my last words. Samantha Goodall, she died as she lived. A sarcastic son of a gun. Never. Not once in my thousands of years of being, not once. As a human spoken to me with such a gill, the wolf demon wheezed out between fits of laughter. We are gathered here today in remembrance of Samantha Goodall. I wonder if they'll actually say that at the funeral. Well, I didn't know what to say. I shouted back to the demon to which it only laughed louder. Well, I suppose you wouldn't, little human. The demon wheezed between chuckles. Once again, I'm struck by how abnormal the laughter sounds from a demon of all creatures. Who knew that they could even laugh? Who the heck are you calling little? I shouted indignantly. The corners of his mouth turned up into an expression mimicking a smile, and even I could see the demon was holding back a laugh. I frowned at the wolf thing. My humblest apologies, Mrs. Samantha, the wolf demon's lips twitched again. My humblest apologies, Mrs. Samantha. It has been many centuries since my last expedition into the human realm. You must excuse me if my manners are a little lacking. Did a demon just apologize to me? I think I've had too much to drink. Better than having my bones eaten, I suppose. I said as flatly as I could manage. But now you know who I am, so who the heck are you? Did I ask a demon their name? Yeah, yeah I did. Looking back, it wasn't my smartest move. My name. It is an old and powerful name. It is far beyond a mortal such as you. The demon said in a haughty tone. Oh, sure it is. I bet it's Steve or something or maybe Dave. Oh, maybe it's Mr. Fluffles. As far as a final word spoken to a wolf demon in a blood-covered barn goes, Mr. Fluffles isn't too bad. And I do have to admit... Without the scaly-looking skin and the hooks for claws, he does look quite fluffy. You dare. You refer to the mighty Leonard, bringer of the dang, architect of the cruel and dark, bringer of de- 
Did you just say Leonard? Why in God's name did I decide to make fun of its name? Do I want to die? I don't remember having a death wish, but at this point, I'm already convinced that it's over either way. My name is Ancient and Powerful Puny Human. The conversation went on for another hour before I had to make my report to Oodle. It turned out that my first Class 5 wasn't as bad as it could have been. Although I'm fairly sure that Leonard tried to eat my soul at some point, I'm pretty sure it was after I told him about Airbud. A big thanks to Ghostbed for sponsoring this week's episode. Can't get to sleep. Maybe it's nightmares or maybe it's just an uncomfortable mattress. With Ghostbed, you can finally get the scary good sleep that you deserve. For more than two decades, Ghostbed has been making mattresses, pillows, and other sleep products designed for maximum comfort and support. Tired of waking up in a cold sweat? Every Ghostbed mattress features signature cooling materials, including their patented Ghost Ice technology, so you can fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Get fast and free shipping with most orders shipping within 24 hours, plus you'll get a 101 night sleep trial with free returns if you're not 100% comfortable on your new mattress. For a limited time, our listeners can get 30% off Ghostbed mattresses plus two free pillows. Use promo code MrCreeps at ghostbed.com slash creepscast to take advantage of the offer. That's ghostbed.com slash creepscast with promo code MrCreeps. I'm not sure what's going on in my family's basement, but I'm pretty sure it's illegal. Written by Bifel's Disciple My dad would have never gone into the basement that night if he knew that I was watching him. God, Danielle, you scared the crap out of me, he said. I knew that he didn't expect to see me because he tried not to swear when I could hear, but he did it twice. Also, he was dragging a heavy load in a white sheet that looked like it had blood on it. It was dark in the kitchen, but there was enough light coming through the open basement door to make it pretty unmistakable. I woke up to get a glass of water, I explained. What are you taking downstairs? He looked down at the long, heavy object that was wrapped in the sheet. Um, it's a new carpet. For the basement? Yes. We don't have carpet in the basement, which is why we need this one. Go to bed, Danielle. It's a school night. I was pretty sure that he was lying about the carpet, like almost completely certain. Parents think they can get away with lying to their kids all the time, because they forget that growing means losing what we used to believe, and we're growing all the time. I tried very hard to listen to what was happening in the basement. But my bedroom was on the second floor and I couldn't hear a sound, which is much worse than knowing everything. I got home from school at 3.45 every day, and dad never came back from work until after 6. I didn't want to check the basement alone, but we all do things that we don't want to do. Sometimes it feels like we don't have a choice, even when we're the ones acting. The basement is unpleasant. It's dark, even when I pull the chain hanging from the ceiling to turn on the single bulb. 
We have to walk down the stairs with only the light from the kitchen. It's cold and it smells like bleach. I don't know why we have basements, which hold the stuff that we never use. Dad should have just thrown away the workbenches, the barrels, and the tools that he told me not to ask about. I'm not sure what I was looking for, but I hoped that I wouldn't find it. The concrete floor was clean, very clean, but the stands on the workbench had always been there. The basement still had no carpet. I bent down to search the floor. The coldness rose up from the ground and made me shiver as I got on my hands and knees, but the floor was spotless. If I was going to find anything, it had to be around hidden corners, and it had to be now. Daddy wouldn't be happy if he knew that I was in the basement, so I could only do this once. I pulled back a dirty sheet that was draped over a bench and I reached my hand into the darkness. I felt something. Dragging my hand out, I kept the objects covered, not wanting to know. And then I heard a car pulling into the driveway. Mom was home and time was up. So I scooped the objects and held them close. They were teeth. Grown-up teeth. Because they had some silver parts like Daddy has. I felt ashamed when I looked at them. They reminded me of how far from normal I really was. I slid the teeth back behind the sheet and I ran into the kitchen before Mom got inside. Not knowing is worse than anything. Dad sat on my bed and kissed my forehead when I went to sleep, just like he always did. I was relaxed and safe when I felt his weight on the side of my mattress. But we all want our innocence broken, otherwise we would keep it forever. That's why I was hiding behind the sheet in the basement after he put me to sleep. I didn't want to be alone in the dark, and I didn't like knowing the teeth were on the ground next to me. But daddy clearly didn't check that corner so it was the safest place to hide. Staying quiet in a dark place is the best way to hear voices. Mom says that it isn't ghosts and that it's just our imagination going wild when all distractions are gone. But that just proves that she doesn't know what ghosts really are. My jeans and sweater didn't keep me warm. I couldn't stop shivering and I wanted to leave. But then the basement door opened and I really wanted to leave. But it was too late. Our desire is always the strongest in the moment that we realize something familiar has become out of reach. Step. Thunk. Step. Thunk. Step. Thunk. Dad was dragging something heavy down the stairs. Click. I blinked as the light bulb shined dimly through the sheet. I assumed Daddy's eyes wouldn't be immediately adjusted, so I peeked into the room. He was kneeling over another sheet wrapped a bundle on the ground. This one was also bloody. He was sweaty and nervous as he unwrapped it. I had never seen a dead body before, but I knew right away that she wasn't alive. Her skin was the pale color of uncooked mushrooms, and her arms flopped like spaghetti instead of something alive. I wanted to look away so badly. I didn't look away though. Daddy pulled out the saw that spins around in a circle, and I knew that things were about to get gross. 
I was so disappointed in him. And then her arm moved. The woman's face was still dead, but I watched her fingers squirm like worms coming up from the ground after rain. Daddy didn't notice right away. Things might have been different if he had. He was examining the saw when her arm lifted high. It grabbed his throat like a snake that I had once watched eating a mouse. He dropped the saw and squeezed her hand until his fingers had turned white. But it didn't do any good. I felt like my entire body was in dried cement. I couldn't help him, and I couldn't turn away. I wanted to puke. Her arms came alive as Dad slapped her arm, his lips becoming blue while his tongue bulged. The blood vessels in his eyes changed to pink and then splotchy, and then the white turned red. He got weaker as the punches turned into gentle little slaps, and then he stopped moving. I squeaked. The woman dropped my dad to the floor, and he landed like spaghetti. And then she sat up, pulled the sheet off her body, and turned around. She was completely naked, and every part of her skin was pale. I wondered if ghosts are white because dead people sometimes have no blood in them. Our brains form weird thoughts during the most shocking moments. She stood, walked over to my hiding place, and knelt down. I scooted back convincing myself that I would be safe as long as I moved to the darkest corner. That works when we're hiding under the covers in our beds, so I decided it would do just as well here. It didn't work. She pulled back the sheet and stared at me as I stared right back. It may have been my very first time seeing a dead person, but I understood enough to know that, that she was still dead, no matter how much she was walking around. I stared back at eyes that couldn't blink. I breathed, and she didn't. I wanted to run away, but I was cornered. I shook. You feel alone, she said, but her voice was all wrong. You're not alone. You never are. And then the woman reached out a rubbery hand and cupped my face. Her fingers were like ice, but I was afraid to fight back. It felt like my teeth were vomiting, but I couldn't stop them as my fangs cut through my gums and exposed themselves to the world. I hated it and I was ashamed, because they reminded me of how far from normal I really was. Welcome to the night, she whispered as my first tears fell. Now, she continued, looking behind her, there are several options for your father. Are you ready to find out who you really are? I stared at the naked woman who had just killed my father, unable to pin down my emotions, still very confused that she could talk to me despite being dead. What do you mean about options for my father? I breathed, feeling like I was watching myself from above. My daddy's dead, right? The woman folded her pale arms. I could see the veins just under her skin. Spider webbing throughout her body like blue tree roots wrapped in rice paper. Dad, it doesn't mean what people think, Danielle. Her voice sounded sticky like mud as she narrowed her eyes at me. 
If a person's soul can birth into this world where there had previously been nothing, don't you realize that it can go somewhere else when nothing returns? I don't know. I answered honestly. It felt like my voice was coming from underwater. Are you going to kill me now too? She reached out and lifted my lips. Her fingers were cold, not ice cold, but more like a dead fish that hasn't quite started to sink. You always knew what was hidden inside, didn't you? Even if you had never seen them, part of you knew what was there. I slid my tongue absently across the fangs that had erupted from my gums. The woman narrowed her cerulean eyes at me. We don't kill our own. And then she bared her teeth. Two poisonous looking fangs dripped from her gums, curving into serpentine points. Come with me, Danielle. I will show you something different from what you've known or what you thought was possible. I looked down on my father's crooked form. He hated bad posture, and it looked so wrong to see him so still, and my cheeks got hot as my head spun. And then the woman was holding my face close to hers. There's yet time for me to accept a turn. I'll do it, but only if you ask, Danielle. What do you want for your father? We don't grow up all at once. It happens in fits and starts, and never when we're ready. Age can only change us when our spirit is no longer fit for the world that we knew. I tried to turn away, but she wouldn't let me. Do what it takes to keep him here, I whispered. The woman stared at me harder, and it felt like she was scraping the back of my skull with her eyes. Death is natural. What you're about to see isn't. What has been done can never be undone. Do you understand? No, I answered, and my head slumping. Oh, good. She let go of me. Anyone who answers yes to that question is insane. The woman turned around and paused while facing my dad, and then she slowly stepped toward him her bare feet padding softly against the concrete floor. I felt guilty about the fact that there were only wrong choices before me. Oh, what are you going to do? I heaved, preparing to intervene. Oh, stop asking questions to which you already know the answers, Danielle. You're 12 years old. My stomach burned like it did the time that I ate too many deviled eggs that had been sitting in the sun. I fell to my knees. The dead woman knelt as well, hovering over my dad, her fangs extending even lower as they elongated past her bottom lap. Wait, I called out, but it was too late. We always like trying to stop things after it's too late, because that makes us feel like the world isn't what we make of it. Her fangs sunk deep into my daddy's neck with a splurge. The room felt like it was dancing from side to side as I held back the vomit. The dead woman pulled like she was sucking deeply from a straw. Her eyes rolled back as they bulged, turning into veiny orbs that protruded menacingly from her sunken white face. She rose up, lifting my dad's neck with her. 
His body shuddered, and then his skin turned a slightly darker tannish shade. Dad squeezed a fist, and then the woman released her mouth as Daddy fell to the ground and shook. Her eyes swiveled in their sockets before sitting on me once more. She heaved, catching her breath while we stared at one another. He might rise, she gasped. He might not. Daddy's fist clenched again. But we can't wait to find out. She stood and stepped across my father's body, reaching her hand toward me. I didn't take it. Will things ever be normal again? Now that she had blood in her system, the woman seemed capable of emotion. I'm sorry, Danielle, but this was always going to happen to you. The only question was the timing. I looked past her knees. I want to see if Daddy wakes up. She bent down and took my hand by force. No, you don't. I wouldn't have believed that I was going to leave my father behind, but my legs seemed to carry me on their own accord. I followed the woman in a daze as we left the mess on our floor, and she led me up the 19 steps of my family's basement for the last time. You'll be 13 soon, she explained as we walked out of the back door and into the chilly night. Old enough to know the truth. She squeezed my hand tighter. I pulled back. I want to go home, I protested. She turned sharply around to face me. Danielle, where do you think I'm taking you? Digging my heels into the grass, I tried to break free, but she was too strong, and it didn't matter how hard I clutched the ground. The woman floated up above me, legs hanging down as gravity released its hold on her. I wasn't ready to fly, but it was too late. She pulled my wrist after her, and my feet left the grass as my shoulders screamed in pain, the muscles stretching like taffy. As I rose into the air and flew past my childhood home into the night sky, the most shocking thing about flying was that it wasn't shocking at all. While the dead woman lifted above my backyard fence, pulling me behind her, the sensation felt natural. I watched as my shoes floated over the bushes as we floated into the night. I was afraid for my dad, and afraid of him. I didn't want him to be dead or undead or whatever the woman's bite had done to him. But every emotion climbed on top of itself as they screamed for my attention. They cancelled themselves out, leaving me feeling completely numb as we all drifted. Can't you fly any higher? I asked her. I didn't want to look directly at the woman, because her naked and dead body had scared me. My hands were as cold as ice, far colder than any hand should be. No, she responded. I know you must have concerns, but... You need to wait until we return to my congregation. Adults often answer questions by saying things that just raise more questions. Sometimes, it's easier not to say anything in response and let a person feel like they're right. We floated through the night, and I felt like I was floating through it. The night became a physical presence, 
like water that I could drink or swim in. I was almost surprised when we stopped moving. We had landed in front of a large mansion with no lights on. We stood in thick and dewy grass that felt alive and dead at the same time. I thought about asking the woman if she was cold, but I suppose you don't care about a lot of things when you're dead. Let's go, Danielle, she whispered. The woman pulled my hand, which was still resting in hers. It's time for you to return home. A sudden jolt of fear ripped through my arm and stuck into my chest as I followed her forward. I didn't want to go in, but I couldn't think of any other option, so I obeyed. The house swallowed a noise. We walked up the front steps and through the door and into a dark entryway with only the pale moon to guide us. Our footsteps made no sound as she led me around a hallway and to an open door. Light but no warmth radiated from the bottom of the staircase before us. Fear clutched my stomach and snaked up through my throat in the form of a green nausea as for the first time I tried to pull away. Her icy grip held firm. You need to do this, Danielle, she ordered. The woman moved down the first step, pulling me unwillingly after her. Each step felt worse. I knew that I didn't want to see what was at the bottom of the stairs, but I also knew that I didn't have a choice. I held my breath at the bottom before moving around the corner, telling myself that there was no way it could be as bad as I was setting it up in my mind. I was wrong. A ring of ghoulish-looking men and women huddled in a circle at the center of the stone-walled basement, each holding a flickering candle that made their pale skin look waxy. Several more candles sat throughout the room, providing the only source of light. Sitting in the middle of the group was a shirtless man kneeling on the floor, with his hands bound behind his back. His brown hair and beard displayed widely about his face. The man's head was bent forward, but he stared up with an angry defiance. Directly across from me, one pale man lifted his arms in greeting. Welcome, Danielle, to Amenity Falls. I'm so glad that you're finally where you belong. My stomach lurched as I stared at him. His voice was somehow low and high at the same time, a sliding discomforting kind of fear on my spine. His most unsettling feature, however, was his eyes. They were pink. I am Kadavru, he announced. We've been waiting a long time to meet you, Danielle. More than anyone, Brooke here has been anticipating your encounter. The bound man grunted but did not budge. The woman finally released me and stepped toward the group. We both understood that I wouldn't run away. You have done everything expected and more, Gita. Kadavru commended as one of the pale women placed a black robe around her. And then he turned to face me. We're looking forward to great things, Danielle. I wanted to cry, puke, and hide, but I couldn't do any of those things. At least 19 pairs of eyes stared at me, and I knew that they could fly up the 13 steps before I got anywhere near the door. Nothing to say, Kadavru pressed. 
Very well. Your actions will do the speaking for you. The crowd drew back at his words, extending the circle to the stone edges of the basement. Only the kneeling man in the center remained in place. Are you ready? Kadavru hissed, smiling in a way that made me unhappy. No. I finally announced to the room. I don't know what's going on and I, I think I want to go home. You are home, Danielle. Droned a pale woman from my right. She's correct, child. Kadavru pressed, his inexplicably pink eyes boring into me. You can't escape this. I wiped my eye. I can't escape what? I mumbled, not wanting to know the answer. Kadavru stared at me a moment longer before, drawing a knife and approaching the kneeling man, broke from behind. My breath stopped as he raised the knife and slashed. Brooke's arm burst forth as he leapt to his feet, the now severed rope falling to the floor. Kadavru backed away with a sinister smile. Brooke looked around wildly, like an animal trapped in a cage, at the people encircling him. I stepped back, pressing my arms against the cold stone wall. Brooke is the reason that Gita ended up in your father's basement. He's also the reason that she will never see her daughter again. Brooke whipped around to stare at Kadavru, looking ready to murder him. Danielle, the moment is right and the man is right. We're excited to share this with you. He grinned, lifting his arms. Welcome to your first kill. We're prohibited from experiencing certain things at age 12. Kids hate that fact. But when the strange man told me that it was time for my first kill, I finally understood that grating phrase, you're not old enough yet, can make a lot of sense. Brooke turned around and scowled at Kadavru. This is why, he heaved. This is exactly why you're filth. Every one of you, he spat, is too cowardly to face me unless it's twenty to one. And even then, even then, you're afraid of me and send a little girl to do it. His breathing was very heavy. You're nothing but trash, and I'll happily give my life to keep good people from being poisoned by trash. That's why the world is better off without her daughter. He finished with a whisper, pointing at Gita. In the frozen silence that followed, the only movement was the torchlight dancing on the man's bare sweaty chest. And then Gita screamed and ran toward him, her robes flowing behind as she bared her vicious fangs. What happened next was so quick that I had to replay it in my mind three times before I understood what had happened. Brooke leaned toward her before quickly drawing back as Gita opened her mouth. He leapt into an uppercut that plowed directly into her now exposed neck. The punch was powerful enough to lift her off, off the ground. His gut kick was waiting as she landed. Gita collapsed to the floor, struggling to breathe. You're a coward, Brooke yelled, pointing at Kadavru. He took several bold steps through the middle of the circle, closing the gap between them. And if I'm going to die here, it's going to be fighting against him. Kadavru grabbed Brooke by his neck and lifted the muscular man with a single arm. Brooke kicked frantically 
but his boots were two feet off the ground. Cadaver inspected him with a curious look, as though he were holding a particularly interesting coin up to the light. I have no particular need for the two of us to spar, he explained in a calm voice. You would already be dead otherwise. He dropped Brooke to the ground with a sound like ten melons falling at once. Brooke struggled to pull in air while failing to draw himself into a kneeling position. Nearby, Gita was on her hands and knees, staring in hate as she slowly regained her breath. A chill ran through me as I looked across at Kadavru, who stood over the group without any hint of emotion or movement. You're wasting your time in fighting the inevitable hunter, he explained in the same deep and controlled voice. You can resist what's foregone or you can do what you've come here to do. And Brooke rolled his head to face his enemy, and then Cadaver pulled something from inside his robes and dropped it to the stone floor with a clatter. One wooden stake, 19.13 inches, carved to your exact specifications, he explained. You can have it if you face the task for which you have been brought here. Electric chills flared in my hips, buzzing on my neck and back, before curling around my ears and settling in my head, as every face turned toward me. I snapped around to check the staircase, but three pale, robed figures moved to block it, and then I looked again to Brooke. He met my eyes, and it was enough to know that he hated me before he knew me. Fine, he announced reaching for the stake without breaking his gaze. If you're vile enough to want me to murder your children, that's where I'll start. I wanted to cry. I wanted to explain that I wasn't one of them, that everyone clearly hated me equally that it wasn't fair to pull me into a world filled with purposeless anger, where I had nothing to gain from winning a fight. But I understood the truth as Brooke rose to his feet continuing to glare at me with hatred that I had no hope of understanding. Angry people cannot win fights by hardy people they oppose. Their only concept of victory is to destroy the faith of those who believe that conflicts can be resolved without pain. Please stop. I squeaked as the robed figures parted to give Brooke access to me. He looked down on me with joy. My breath hitched as I realized that he could choose to stop himself, but he simply wouldn't do so as long as he was alive. He raised the stake as he stepped in front of me. We all have pieces of ourselves that float around unused, like books high atop forgotten shelves, until the strangest turn of fate makes us pull them out and see what's inside. I felt another piece of me, a hidden Danielle, squirming to get free. Brooke reached for me with his left hand as he lifted his right one higher, and something snapped, and the inner Danielle jumped into my skin. My fangs erupted as I jumped at Brooke, suddenly confident and very angry as I focused on the hand coming toward me. I took it into my mouth and bit down in red fury, the hand bone snapping like little twigs as my teeth sunk deep into his meat. He flinched like a jolt of electricity had shot through him. The stake momentarily stopped. 
Now hurt, Brooke swung it again as I pulled deeply at the flavorful blood in his hand. He froze. I pulled again, drinking the essence of his life and he dropped the stick to the ground as his eyes sunk into their sockets. I drank it again and his skin melted against his bones, his face not little more than a fleshy skull. Pulling one more time, I watched his skin turn ashen gray as his lips disappeared. His neck, now little more than deflated flesh, was unable to support a head that rolled back like rotten fruit. I released his hand and pulled my head back while pushing against his frail frame. Now little more than a skeleton, I tossed the body lightly aside. It crashed to the floor with a weak clatter, the sound of tinkling teeth scattering to the edges of the dark room. I felt good. I felt alive. Nineteen sets of eyes gazed at me, but no one said a word. It was Kadavru who finally broke the silence, but he remained pressed against the wall as he spoke. A little girl, he gasped. What kind of monster are you? Our sense of right and wrong is mostly determined by the passions of those who happen to be standing nearby. So as I gazed at the 19 sets of menacing eyes while I backed into a stone wall, I truly felt that I was the one in the wrong, even though I didn't understand why. Why did you bring her here, Kadavro? One of them asked in a terrified voice. She doesn't belong with us. I didn't want them to see me cry. She's crying, another called out. She knows that she's a freak. I don't, I whispered. You're the ones who brought me. I pressed my back against the cold rock of the basement wall, trying to grab onto anything but coming up empty-handed. The crowd formed a semicircle around me so that I couldn't see them all at once, no matter how quickly I glanced in every direction. Their ghost-like faces were even more sinister in the dancing torchlight. We're not safe with her around, another announced. A sob escaped my lips despite my best efforts to hold it back. I was the only one to be attacked. She doesn't understand. A man's deep voice called out. We can't explain it to someone who doesn't already believe us. And Gita had recovered from her attack and gotten to her feet, enjoying the crowd. She stepped to the middle of the semicircle and plucked something from the ground. It was the wooden stake that Brooke had used to attack me. It sometimes can be difficult to do the right thing. She breathed, her knuckles flexing around the weapon. But we need to keep our community safe. I nearly fell over as the images of the night flew through my mind. Gita's limp alabaster body on my basement floor. Brooke dissolved into dust by my actions. My father somewhere between alive and dead left behind as I was whisked away. I didn't want any of this, I whimpered. I'm only 12. That just proves how dangerous she is, another man called out. Something broke inside of my mind just then. I had always believed that right and wrong were clear lines that any level-headed person could see if they chose to do so. In that moment, however, I realize that we all choose to imagine the boundary with whatever hindsight makes us most comfortable, and we see violence as a way of correcting the existence of those 
who proved that morality is retroactive, and I remembered that I had teeth. I looked at the Gita's a twisted sneer as she gazed at me in unmitigated disgust. I felt her hate and I reflected it back. I had never learned how to pull my fangs out, but instinct guided me as I dropped them down and hissed. She let go of her stake and staggered back. Adrenaline flowed through me as I realized that I didn't have to hate myself as much as they hated me. I might even be able to run out of the basement if I could just get past the crowd. Turning to the steps leading out of this place, I gauged the strength of those who stood in my way. They all scurried aside before I could form another thought. They were afraid of me. I loved and hated myself for understanding this fact. That paradox mixed with the decision that I didn't want to make, but I had to act on immediately. Racing up the stairs, I could save myself, but it would also require embracing the ugliness of believing that I was at my best when feeling like a living pestilence. The alternative was to let them hurt me, which has a hypnotic appeal when you're made to feel that our spirits are intrinsically disgusting. All of this was felt with emotions and no words. It would take years to articulate even to myself what I had experienced in that moment. I hated myself and I ran, up the stairs, into the hall and out the front door and into the night. The frigid air wrapped me tight and I had undressed for the occasion, and I was cold. I didn't understand what had happened, but I knew that I was alone. With no cell phone and no idea where I was, I wondered... I lost a lot of things that night, some all at once and others bit by bit as I traversed an unfamiliar city. I had always believed that life had strict boundaries and that certain lines could never be crossed. One of those false convictions was that somebody would always take care of me, but passing street after street in the unforgiving chill had stripped that away. I cried. I was at the intersection of 19th and 13th when I decided that anyone who really cared about me would have been by my side while I was alone. And then I turned to the left and saw myself reflected in a store window. For the first time in hours, I smiled. It revealed two tiny things when I took the time to look hard enough. The sun was almost ready to peek over the gray sky morning when I finally recognized the street that I had been walking. Without thinking, I headed towards home. Every contradicting emotion ran through me at once. Above them all was a single thought. I had left my father behind in the floor. Shouldn't he treat me the same way? Anxiety swirled with adrenaline to curdle into nausea that settled deep in my stomach as I placed my hand on the back doorknob. I had last seen my father dead on the ground. Maybe. So much of this night had been driven by the fact that I had to make decisions about my life without understanding what was happening or why. I closed my eyes and reminded myself that one day I would be an adult, and I would never have to feel that way again. I opened the door and walked into the house. It was very still like the place had been abandoned. Nervousness flowed through me as I stepped toward the basement door. It stood slightly ajar. Had we left it open, I couldn't remember. My hands were shaking as I reached out and opened it. The basement was quiet. 
Nausea grew with each step. Did I want to see my father's body? Or was I hoping to see him alive, even though he would be in a certain agony? I didn't know what to hope. I took the last step into the basement, and then I turned a corner, looked down at the bloodstained floor, and gasped. Imagine how a body looks when a victim dies in pain. Can you see the fear in their glazed eyes? The way their mouth is frozen in a wide open, permanent scream as rigor mortis sets in. Their narrowed fingers forever locked in the last failed attempt to end their pain. Now imagine that person as someone that you loved. My father was still recognizable, but his body was far enough removed from normal that everything in the world felt off kilter. It would have been better if he were marred beyond recognition, but the semi-familiarity made it so much worse. Like I was listening to soothing and familiar music played out of tune in the wrong key. Daddy's eyes stared up at me from the basement floor. I remember staring at his skin and thinking that it was the color of paper, far beyond the hue of any normal tone. The look on his body's face was clear. He could see the uncommon and he wanted to reach for it. All of the aspirations for the second half of his life were worth destroying if it meant stopping the pain. I couldn't put all of this into words when I was 12. The emotions were specific, but beyond my ability to articulate. I can share them now because I've relived those moments daily in the years since, and I had to put the voice to the feelings if I wanted to keep my sanity. The image of my dead father broke something in my mind. Watching his corpse stand up sent that fissure into the deepest part of me, cracking my spirit and leaving it unfixable. What happened, Danielle? He whispered. His voice sounded like dust blowing over rice paper. What did I lose? I wanted to help him stand, but I was afraid of my corpse dad. So I tried as he slowly and feebly got to his feet grasping the handrail for support as he looked around the basement with wide eyes. My throat was nearly too dry to speak. You died, Daddy. He looked down at me, not in confusion or in anger, but sadness. He stepped forward like Frankenstein's monster, and I recoiled in fear. He saw that he was scaring me, but he didn't know how to stop it. So we just stared at each other ashamed. You didn't tell me the truth, I whispered. Are you really my dad? He was quiet for a long while. The tears forming at the edges of his eyes marked the first time that I had ever seen him cry. I wasn't your dad when you were born, Danielle. I'm only your dad now if you let me. I didn't know what to say. What am I? He swayed on his feet. Something I was taught all my life that I needed to hate. I nodded. It made sense because it was the opposite of everything that I had ever known. Which is exactly how this entire night had been. My family is composed of hunters and we've always hated vamps because they killed so many of the people that we loved. Our only response was to eradicate them. Is that how they saw you? My voice sounded like it was coming from underwater. 
I suppose I never really thought about it. He wobbled again. My dad's face was still paper white. Your mom and I had a little girl before you were born. The vamps got to her at her first birthday party, January 9th, 13 years ago. It changed the way that I understand sadness, Danielle. Everything bad that had happened to me before losing my first daughter, pain as a concept had always been sadness that arose from, hoping things might return to normal. But losing a child meant accepting that life simply can't be normal again. Ever. Pain doesn't work the same way afterward, because hope is dead. He wiped his eyes again. I noticed that they were turning pink. So I made a decision. We didn't speak for at least a minute. I could feel the quiet hanging thick between us like heavy swamp moss that dangled in clumps from when dad took us on a trip to Louisiana when I was 10. It was hard to breathe there too. I took a little girl from one of them. Figured that killing her was too easy. No, I was going to do worse, so much worse. I would raise her to be like me, to hunt them without mercy. When they saw one of their own turned, I knew they would finally be broken like I was. My insides felt like concrete. Dad cried harder. Two things happened. The first is that I discovered that the little girl wasn't a vamp like the rest of them. She didn't feed the same way, didn't have the same hunger. The congregation would hate her even more than our hunters, because she was an abomination in their eyes. The second is that the broken piece of me the one that had stopped hoping had shifted again. It didn't reset to the way things had once been. That's impossible. But the hate that had been burning for so long, that had kept me going forward. It wasn't satisfied, but it just sort of ran out of fuel. I became a less efficient hunter, so I didn't fight as much. As a result, I wasn't with the rest of my gathering on the night that they were ambushed. I was taking care of my little girl while her mom was away. I think the other hunters chose that night because I would be gone, since I was losing my edge. Good thing I never told them my plan to raise a vamp, because they had solved the problem in their own way. He sighed. It was a hollow, ringing sound, like wind rushing through an abandoned home. When four of them died in a single night, I withdrew. I didn't hunt at all for a while, and I realized that I didn't miss it. Didn't miss the fire that had been burning me every day. I knew the truth had to come out eventually. And I knew that Vamp and Tuncher alike would see my daughter as a target when that day came. But she was the best thing in my world. So I decided to live the best life we could with the time that we had left. He stopped talking and he looked at me. I stared right back. So, he asked, his voice nearly caught in a sob. What do we do now? I stared at my father, neither alive nor dead, watching him sway on his feet. Our minds go to strange places in the most intense moments of our lives. I remember how drafty the basement was. I was tired but didn't want to sleep. A pain stain on the ground consumed my attention as I thought about the fact that it had always been there, but I had never taken the time to consider how it had come to be.
Danielle, Dad whispered. I looked up at his paperweight skin, mired only by two puncture marks in his neck where livid red blood sparkled beneath the sodium lights. I remembered a line from a play that my teacher had tried to explain to us. Too early seen unknown and known too late. After asking the class what it meant, and then receiving no response, she just looked sad and put her big red book away. She never mentioned it again. I think a lot of adults are like that. They want to share something very personal and special, but they spend their lives in silence, waiting for somebody to ask in just the right way. I don't know why I thought of that line, but it made sense for just a few seconds. Danielle, he breathed again. Do you hate me? I didn't know what to say, and I know that my silence hurt him. He was just starting to cry when the window broke. Dad ran forward and yanked me away from the steps as we heard the upstairs window slide open. Danielle, he hissed, don't make a sound. Footsteps paced across the floor directly above our heads as a man stalked deliberately toward the basement door. I held my breath as I realized that there was no place to run or to hide. The basement was a dead end. Dad squeezed my shoulders with ice-cold hands. Slowly, the door at the top of the stairs opened. Hello, Danielle, a gravelly voice called, and then he started walking down the steps. Dad pulled me back toward the far wall, moving himself in front of me as we watched a shadow emerge. It was a tall man with long, flowing brown hair. His teeth were very white when he smiled. He seemed like the sort of person who was happiest when he was angry. True, Dad announced in a shaky voice. It's been some time. True cocked his head on my father. Yes, and now that we've caught up, we need to talk about Danielle. Dad's entire body froze. How did you know? Our connection at the congregation felt that this was worth sharing. True answered dismissively. He flexed his fists, making the muscles in his chest look like they were about to tear through his tight black shirt. You're far, far beyond sloppy at this point. Your failure endangers the rest of the gathering. He pulled out a long, thin, and wooden spike. I came as quick as I could. You raised her as a human daughter. You shouldn't have to be the one to do it. Every skin cell felt like it was being burnt off my body. Until that night, I would have never thought my daddy was capable of killing anyone, let alone me. But as I looked back on what both of us had done in the past few hours, I realized that we're all strangers to each other, because we were all strangers to ourselves. Essen, he pressed, addressing my father by name for the first time. You shouldn't have to be the one to do it. True walked towards us, and then my dad stepped to the side, exposing me to the man who looked so happy to be so hateful. My head spun like a top. I didn't move because I had been so sure that my dad would protect me, because dads are supposed to keep their daughters safe, and I was so shaken by the abandonment that I couldn't think of a single way to react other than freezing in place and waiting for him to hurt me. True's grip was like a metal clamp. I tried to move only when it was too late. 
His smile grew wider as he felt me struggle. Helplessness leads to panic and leads to helplessness, and the cycle is quick. I smacked his hand as hard as I could, but that just brought him more joy. Do you know why our stakes are exactly 19.13 inches? It's a very important number. He asked, holding the pointed stick up to my face. I cried. His grab snapped away quickly as his hands grabbed a throat that had just split like the doughy skin of a dumpling. I was confused at first because I had never seen somebody's neck eaten while they were still alive, and I didn't know that my father had fangs. True fought back long after his body was no longer worth saving. Dad drank his blood like a thirsty athlete, gulping it down in disgusting swags. And then he opened his mouth and released True, who bounced on the floor like a ragdoll. Dad grabbed the wooden stake from the ground and plunged it into True's heart with a squelch. He gasped for breath. I stared down numb. Dad? I whispered. Did I just grow up? He looked up at me in shame, his hollow, ice-blue eyes animalistic. Are you sad? I tried to swallow, but my throat was too dry. Sad and confused. He nodded. The answer is yes, just a little bit. We waited in silence. We're not safe here, are we? I finally asked. We're not safe anywhere, Danielle. He wiped the blood from his mouth and tears from his eyes. I will be sorry for the rest of my life, he stood. The blood dripped from his chin. So, he asked, his voice wary. Do you want to know the truth? The air felt heavy in my lungs like everything around me was grittier and always would be. No, I answered. I don't want to know the truth. I wiped my eyes, but I have to now. Dad stepped toward me and wrapped me in a soft hug. It was the gentlest touch that I had felt from him since that horrible night began. He kissed the top of my head and pulled me in close. I hugged him back, but there was a great distance between us that I incoherently believed was temporary. Growing up usually isn't fun, Dad said as he released me. I suppose that's why parents hide it from their children for as long as they can. I stared around at the stark basement, the bright lights and the blood on the ground. Oh, well, we have to run away, I asked. My voice sounded like it was coming from another room. Dad wiped his eye. Yeah, he folded his arms. And I don't think I'll be able to go with you. My stomach turned cold. Like every organ, it changed to stone at that exact same time. Dad looked at me but didn't face me. I achieved my first kill at 19, because I had been planning for it since I was 13. Danielle, when you believe in a cause, it has a way of becoming its own justification, even when that cause works against the things that led you to it in the first place. He shuffled his feet around at True's spreading blood. Our gathering, that's the name for a group of vamp hunters, made a deal with a very dangerous man. He gave us information and money to help us hunt. It was never enough to give us what we wanted, but always just sufficient to get him what he needed. We took it because we believed that we were right, 
He wiped his other eye. I convinced myself that he wasn't doing the exact same thing for the congregation. That's a group of vamps that we were hunting. I had to make myself think that, because I knew the truth would destroy my belief system, and I had already hurt too many people to question whether I was wrong. He squatted next to True and rested his hand on the man's bloody brown hair. Why was the dangerous man giving you money if he was tricking you? Dad smiled and I had never seen him look so sad. That's the best way to control someone, Danielle. I didn't understand. Who is he? Dad slowly turned to face me. Alistair Delora. Remember his name, Danielle, because he already knows yours. A finger of hot nausea tickled the back of my throat. Why would he care about knowing the little girl's name? Dad's lips drew thin as he stood. It doesn't matter that you're a little girl. If you have something that he wants, then you're just an obstacle. He ran his fingers through thinning hair. I always knew that, I always saw it, but I chose to pretend that I didn't. People who make those mistakes are rarely the ones to pay for them. I'm so sorry, Danielle. So, let me get this straight. I shot back, my eyes suddenly molten hot. The hunters want to hurt me because they think I'm a vamp. The vamps want to hurt me because they think that I'm not. And the dangerous man is coming for me because I'm in the middle. The heat spread across my face. I felt like I was melting from the inside out. And that everybody would be happier if I had dissolved into nothing. In that moment, I was sure that the world wouldn't be at peace until I decided to stop loving myself. Dad turned paler. He handed me the bloody steak which I took in shaking hands. I didn't want it, but I was sure that I had no choice. What will the bad man do if he finds me? Dad turned away. I don't know. I made a decision to remain ignorant. He folded his arms. There are more special people all over the world. The man is very interested in special women and girls. He swallowed. The hair on my neck stood at attention as I felt fingers curl around my ankle. I looked down to see that True was not quite dead. The stake was in his heart before I realized that I was bending over to attack him. I noticed that my fingers were coated in blood and that the wooden tip had disappeared into his chest and that the grip on my ankle had slackened. Attacking him didn't feel unnatural. I decided that the world might be right. Perhaps it wouldn't be happy until I no longer loved myself, but I didn't owe happiness to the world. If taking as much for myself meant misery for others, then they deserved the rottenness that they wanted to spread. I lacked the ability to articulate any of this at age 12, but I understood it was true without the phrasing being necessary. Most people are afraid of arranging exact words in a perfect order, because we can only endure our own minds when shrouded in at least a little bit of mystery. I stood. What does he do with these special women and girls? I breathed, distantly shocked at how steady my own voice sounded. Dad got paler. They're brought to a place called the Harlequin Heaven. No one taken there ever leaves. That's all I know. I rub my fingers around the slick blood coating my fingertips. When are they coming for me? The sound of a car racing down the street swept into the basement. 
loud enough for us to feel the urgency in the driver's effort. Danielle, Dad snapped, grabbing my wrist. We have to run. I sprinted up the basement stairs without waiting for an explanation from my father. So many different people wanted to hurt me that it was safer to assume every stranger was an enemy. The van screeched to a halt just outside of our front door. The sound was loud enough to communicate exactly what was unfolding even though I couldn't see it. A heavy man leapt onto the sidewalk and raced toward the house. And the only way out of the basement was moving upward and closer to the front door. Have you ever been forced to run from danger by running toward it? Our survival instinct stretches and cracks in those moments, pushed and pulled by contradictory messages between our higher and lower brains. But I knew that moving too slowly would be a final mistake, so I sprinted to the top of the stairs and pushed open the door. A thin, pale man was waiting for me. Danielle. He whispered as the man outside slammed against the front door. Please, I gasped. Please move. There's a man who wants to hurt me. There are many men who want to hurt you. He answered in a steady voice. The front door slammed again as the thin man reached for me. Dad shoved me hard against the wall and tackled the pale man as the front door burst open. The two of them rolled on the floor, each bearing a vicious looking set of fangs. They stopped with Dad on the bottom, his enemy's hands wrapped around his neck. What did you think those teeth would do, SN? The pale man smiled as he stepped behind him. You can't hurt me with a bite, but I can make you suffer by squeezing a throat that will never die. He hissed as he grabbed Dad's neck even tighter, his face turning bright red. Dad made silent eye contact with me as the pale man continued talking. You can't see more than one step ahead, SN, and that's why your daughter won't. Dad burst forward and knocked the pale man onto the stake that I had pointed against his back. The weapon ripped through his chest with a splurge that seemed to surprise him more than anything else. Blood gushing down his chest. The pale man looked back at me in confusion before rolling off my father. Dad gasped for breath as the other man walked into the kitchen. He seemed nine feet tall and bearded and thick, more animal than human. My survival instinct kicked into high gear. I knew that he was here to take me to the man that dad had warned me about, and that I would have been safer if we had just let the vamp kill me. Understanding hit me in an instant. Both a hunter and a vamp had appeared minutes apart from each other and alone. Such an arrangement meant that they wouldn't fight one another, and they wouldn't have the numbers to take me. But it would be just enough to slow us down so that this towering behemoth could have his way in the end. They had been sacrificed by a man who knew how to use his pawns. Time ticked sideways. I looked down from the stranger to my father, and I understood what was about to happen. I knew that he would overpower the two of us even with our fangs, and that this fight was over before it began. Now I know what's in room 1913 SN, the large man said. Dad closed his eyes and took a long breath before looking at me. For a few moments, every sound ceased except for my father's voice. He stared up from the floor, eyes bloodshot and face still red, too exhausted to cry. Danielle, if you've ever loved me, don't stop running. 
He sprang to his feet and lunged at the enormous man. Dad's face met a plate-sized fist that knocked him to his knees. Dad couldn't win this fight, but if he fought to the end, it would be enough to give me a 30-second head start. Would you run away? I thought that I would need a long time to consider her but it turns out that we really know the answers to even the most painful questions. It just takes time to admit them. I turned and sprinted toward the back door, bursting through it as Dad screamed. I ran. I ran until my lungs burned and my veins pumped battery acid, and I didn't stop for a very long time. I knew that the world could hurt me because I could hurt it right back, and I could look at that fact from any angle that I chose. I never saw my father again. I knew it even then, but wouldn't believe it for a long time. The large man, however, would reappear several times in my life. I was a freak, but everybody's a freak from someone else's perspective, and feeling normal is just a lack of self-awareness. Tears flowed freely as I raced into the night. This was Dad's fault. All parents fail their children in ways that will follow them forever. I suppose that's the only reason we can beg forgiveness from our own children. My ugliness kept me alive by hurting anyone who felt normal through hating me, and each encounter pulled back more of the veil. I figured it didn't make much sense to hate myself, and so many other people were handling that particular task. So I felt the difference flow through me as I lifted my legs higher and higher, moving away from everyone who believed that I was wrong from birth, and raged. Soon my feet weren't even touching the ground, and I stopped pumping them all together as I floated higher and higher into the night. I'm a marine stationed at Camp Pendleton. I met a skinwalker in the dirt fields. Written by Jordan Grobe. Being assigned to Camp Pendleton was a dream come true. Located in Oceanside in northern San Diego, it's one of the biggest marine corps bases in the U.S. There's a ton of stuff to do nearby. Whether it's going to the beach to surf, swim, or go for drinks at the pier. The people around here are mellow, and there's a surfer sort of vibe in the neighborhood. Everything was going great for me the first few weeks while I was here. But I noticed that despite the laid-back attitude of the surrounding area where I lived, my work life was rigid and inflexible. My commanding officer gruff and no-nonsense. I began to realize that this place was not going to be a cakewalk. And then one cool night, I woke up disoriented and far from my bed. Looking around, I saw that there was nothing nearby. Not another person for miles. Just flat, dirt ground with hills in the distance, and the black sky full of stars and a full moon above. I must have been sleepwalking, I thought to myself rubbing the sleep from my eyes. I had been marching in my dreams while remembering my days of basic training, and I had somehow ended up in the middle of the dirt field. I looked around in every direction and finally saw lights in the distance behind me. At least I had an idea which way to go now. 
Turning around, I started to walk back towards the base. My legs wobbly from the long walk while asleep. It felt surreal to be out there in the middle of the night and I didn't understand how it could have happened. I had been caught sleepwalking once or twice before, but I had never gone anywhere near this far. Part of me wondered with a paranoid fear and just how often this happened without me realizing it. I walked for a few minutes alone, feeling an increase in the strange sensation like a tingling on the back of my neck. After a while, I began to suspect that it was that outdated, lizard brain notion that someone was following me. A remnant from some bygone era when humans actually had to worry about being stalked in the night. Just as I had thought that, someone cleared their throat in the darkness behind me. A chill ran up my spine and my flesh broke out in goose pimples as he spoke. His voice deep, gruff, and commanding. What are you doing all the way out here so late at night? He asked. I stepped closer and in the moonlight, I could see him more clearly. My voice caught in my throat as I looked at his eyes and saw that they were yellow. Like a cat or a wolf or a snake maybe. Haven't you been told to stay in your bunk at this hour? His tone was predatory and overwhelmingly creepy, but his demeanor was otherwise friendly. The part of my brain telling me to run was suddenly being hushed into submission by an unfamiliar voice which told me this was fine and not to worry about a thing. Look at his uniform, the voice said, and sure enough I looked down to see that he was wearing a Marine Corps uniform with the insignia indicating that he was an officer. You wouldn't want to disrespect a superior officer, would you? The voice asked. Sorry, sir, I must have been sleepwalking. I'm just heading back towards the base. I can make it home from there. He showed his teeth and a grin and told me that he would walk with me for a stretch. We must be distant relatives from somewhere down the line, he said as we walked. Both of us out here walking in the middle of the night. I wish I could chalk my trip up to somnambulism, but I'm just a run-of-the-mill insomniac. I can never get back to sleep once I'm up. I usually just go out for a long hike. It reminds me of the old days when I was deployed, I guess. Going for long marches that started before sunrise and didn't end until long past noon. The more time that went by, the more guilty I felt for having almost run from the man. He was just an ordinary guy, and the conversation became easier as we built up a rapport, and I told him about my life and my background, and where I was from. When I looked back at his face, I was shocked by what I saw. Maybe there really was a family connection between the two of us. In the increasing light from the base as we drew closer to it, I saw there was a striking resemblance between us. He didn't look like that when you first saw him. That suspicious voice in my mind has said uneasily. His eyes were yellow, remember? And now look at them, they're brown. But it was quickly drowned out by that other louder voice, which spoke up and said all of this was okay too. It was just dark out in the dirt field, and I hadn't gotten a clear look at his face until now. 
Tell me more about your parents, he said. I want to know all about them. What are they like? I started speaking again, feeling hypnotized as I looked into the older man's swirling brown eyes. He was walking slower and slower and I was matching his pace. The base was close now. I could see the lights of it were very bright up ahead, less than a couple of hundred yards away. But they were getting dimmer suddenly. The light was fading, but how? Were we walking backwards now? Was I even walking at all? Or was something dragging me now? It took me a few moments to shake the strange sleepwalker's haze from my vision, and I realized that I had been in a trance of sorts. When I looked at the man's face again through my half-closed eyes, I was astonished at what I saw. He didn't just bear a passing resemblance to me. He could have been my long-lost twin brother. His eyes were the same shade of brown, his hair close-cropped and chestnut. His jaw was defined and his nose was sharp and angular. But his smile and his teeth, those were not like mine at all. They were pointed and long, designed for tearing flesh from bone and ripping it to shreds. He was pulling me, dragging me across the dirt deeper into the darkness again. Who are you? I heard myself asking, and in that second, he changed completely. It wasn't like what you see in a horror movie, like when a man turns into a werewolf over a matter of a few minutes. The metamorphosis was not slow and drawn out. Instead, it happened in a split second. I blinked and the man who looked like me was no longer there. In his place was an indescribable monster, tall with long limbs, pale gray skin, and pitch black eyes. Its jaw unhinged as it revealed teeth longer and sharper than those belonging to a wolf or a bear. It reminded me of that strange, ethereal white-masked creature from Spirited Away, full of hate and hunger and wanting to consume everything. It didn't appear solid. This thing looked like it was made out of shadows. A shot was fired suddenly, bringing me out of my hypnotized stupor. I realized that I was being dragged away from the base. The creature had my shoulder between its jaws, and it was biting down so hard that I could feel it grating against the bone. Another shot rang out, and I heard a few people yelling out. There were footsteps and I heard something approaching from behind me. The thing tried to pick me up in its jaws and it was so massive and so strong that it actually succeeded momentarily. I thrashed and I punched it in the face, kicking it in the eyes. My shoulder was on fire and my entire arm felt like it was dangling by a thread, as if it would pop off at any second unhinging at the joint like a Thanksgiving turkey drumstick. And then for a second, I thought that it would. It popped out of the socket and dislocated. The flesh began to rip and tear and bleed. The creature nearly tore my arm clean off as another shot rang out. 
I gave it one more good hard kick to the face and the already wounded monster dropped me to the ground, letting out a low moan of pain. It fell, its form turning into a large black puddle of darkness like an oil spill, before skittering off into the night like an infinitely long centipede. It blended in perfectly with the shadows, and it was gone a second later, just as a few other marines arrived. Are you okay? One of them asked, helping me get back up to my feet. Man, I never thought that I would live to see somebody get attacked by a mountain lion. You're lucky to be alive. It took me a few seconds to comprehend what he was saying. It was so bizarre. The thing which had just attacked me, it looked nothing like a mountain lion. It was long and tall and humanoid, with a black wispy shroud surrounding it like a living cloak. Man, are you blind? The other marine asked. That wasn't a mountain lion. I breathed a sigh of relief. Okay, I wasn't crazy. Someone else had seen the thing as well. It was a wolf. A big gray wolf. Man, I've never seen one so big. You sure are lucky to be alive though. That's for sure. Do you want us to call for an ambulance? I shook my head. No, I'll be fine. I can walk. I took a nervous look at them both, as if judging for myself again whether they were human or not. But I decided these two were the real McCoy. If not for them, I would have been that thing's dinner. The two of them walked me back towards the base and I tried to decide whether I should tell them the truth of what I had really seen. But with each step that we took, the memories started seeming more and more surreal and dreamlike, to the point where I even started to convince myself that I had exaggerated what had happened. Maybe it was a mountain lion, or a gray wolf, far off from its pack, desperate for food. But no, the memories could have been wiped away, but the teeth marks were not. They were strange and totally unlike anything a wolf or a mountain lion might leave. When I went to the infirmary to get the bites looked at, they told me that they had never seen anything like them before. After several sets of blood cultures and antibiotics, they never did figure out what was wrong with me or how to get rid of my symptoms. Sleepwalking being primary among them, I would get up from my hospital bed in the night, and it would take a whole team of security guards to get me back into my room. So desperate I was to escape. Back to the fields, I told the man. I needed to get back to the dirt fields. To march. All they could do was watch, as my symptoms got worse and worse and as black, vein-like formations began to spread from the bite wounds, like a dark plague spreading throughout my body. Everything is so cold now, and I feel like I'm losing control. I don't want to feel like this, but I can't help it. Whatever bit me, it infected me. Its contagion is spreading throughout my system and I can no longer fight it off. 
I get these windows of time when I'm with it enough to speak and live my life. And then I get a period of darkness where I remember nothing. After a while, they finally discharged me from the hospital, leaving me alone to deal with the symptoms myself. I honestly think that they're worried about having me so close to the base. They don't know what I'm capable of anymore. Most nights, I wake up far from home, and I don't know how I ended up there, just like that fateful night in the dirt field. It's like I'm sleepwalking all over again. Except, that is not what this is. This is something so much worse. The dark veins are spreading up my neck towards my face, making me stand out and look oh so strange. People think that they're bizarre facial tattoos, inching their way up towards my skull. They keep asking me if I'm alright, as sweat pours down my reddened face and my eyes dart around with nervous paranoia. The blackouts are getting longer and closer together. I don't know how much longer I have left to be me. And I'm terrified of what's going to happen when those veins get to my heart and my mind. Who knows how long I have left before I'm out roaming the dirt fields looking for a meal. On a hunting trip with my granddad, we made a haunting discovery. There's something really wrong with the animals. Written by Darkly Gathers. Drizzle taps lightly on the leaves all around us. The smell of pine rich in the air as we creep through the undergrowth, my granddad and I. I run my tongue along my teeth, focusing. I raise the rifle a little higher. A Nosler, a way higher quality weapon than I should be using. The thing is wasted on me. I'm an appalling hunter. I'm not even sure if I agree with it to be honest. Hunting, I mean, ethically speaking. I mean, my granddad and I eat basically everything we kill and to be honest, I don't kill a whole lot. I send many of my shots deliberately wide. I just do this to hang out with him, really. He's a fascinating man and the guy likes taking me out into the woods, so I just go along with it and it's fine. It's good quality time that I'm lucky to have. But we're stalking a pair of deer right now. Big things as well. I'm pretty sure the creatures know that we're here, but you can get surprisingly close provided you don't actually give off any sign that you're trying to shoot them. Stay low, Robbie. He murmurs through the side of his mouth. Move to your right past the bush. Then it's a clean shot. Take it when ready. I like my name. Named after the man beside me as it happens. Robert. He being Robert and I, and me, of course, Robert II. I nod and creep into position, taking careful aim as instructed. I see a thumbs up in the corner of my eye, and I shoot. I miss. The sound ricochets around the forest and birds burst from a nearby tree, 
shooting up towards the sky. The deer wheel around in a panic and make to leave. God dang it. My granddad mutters and raises up from behind the bush, bringing his rifle with him and firing off a quick shot. My ego is somewhat relieved by the fact that he misses too, and we both watch as the deer disappear into the undergrowth in shadow of the forest. The man lowers his weapon and he looks at me. I do the same and give him a shrug. We hold eye contact for a second and then he breaks with a chuckle, shaking his head. Dang it, Robbie. Every time I think of touch of something, you manage to pull off some magnificent blunder just like that. Hey, well, you know what they say. You shouldn't judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree. I ain't judging you on your tree climbing ability. You're my grandson. I'm judging you on your ability to swim, fishy. I point to the shattered branch that my granddad caused when he had fired his shot. I truly am learning from the best. No good one. He snorts with a laugh, thumping me on the chest. Come on, let's track him. Plenty of daylight left. We push around the bush and head through the little clearing, stepping over to a fallen log and making to follow the route the deer both took. But my granddad suddenly stops and holds up his hand with his head cocked to the side. I pause, likewise waiting, holding my breath and listening intently. My ears honing on the sound of rustling foliage and snapping twigs. It grows louder, heading towards us in the exact direction the deer were running from. Jesus, my granddad grunts. They're coming back this way. They live Sina. But he was cut off by the sudden emergence of the deer through the bushes ahead, rushing right at us from the green and gloomy shade. Crap, I shout out loud in panic. The deer make no attempt to run around us in the slightest, and they run instead directly towards our position. I raise the rifle and take rapid, shaky aim. Dang it, Steve, get down. Granddad shouts, grabbing me by the sleeve and tolling me to the forest floor, back behind the log. Steve. The air escapes me as I crash with my granddad down to the ground, and the deer jump right over us. My granddad instantly takes position, cocking and aiming his own rifle over the top of the log, deathly focused. Something would have made him run like that. They would have seen a wolf or a bear. A wolf? A bear? I'd be surprised to see either at this time of day, but as I said, something made them run. My granddad remains cool and composed, the barrel of his rifle fixed on the damaged woodland ahead and along the deer path. I stick close, watching out in all directions in case we're approached from the side, gun cocked and heart pounding. But nothing comes. We wait for a tension-laden minute and then another, muscles aching with the stress of simply holding ourselves in preemptive positions. But as I said, nothing else comes towards us. My granddad cautiously gets to his feet. Weird, he mutters. We better move out of here. Come on, stay alert, but let's go. I nod in reply and together we make a swift but careful exit from the little grove, heading back through the woods and retracing our steps. After what I hope is something of a safe distance, I ask my granddad a question. Why'd you call me Steve back then? Eh? When the deer were coming at me, you called me Steve. You said, Steve, get down. Is that so? 
My granddad asked, scratching his chin. I don't know. You know Steve, though, right? An old friend of mine. I swear that I mentioned him before. I consider. Uh, yeah, maybe once or twice. Granddad shakes his head. I've definitely talked about him more than that. You probably weren't listening, though. He sighs. It was just the moment, I suppose. The way that you were standing, the deer coming right at you raising your gun. What would have happened if you had shot one, huh? It would have gone right down and knocked you out with it. I don't know, it wasn't all that big. It was bigger than you're giving it credit for, and at that speed, it would have flattened you. It's what I told Steve all those years ago. It did the exact same thing, the idiot. What's he up to these days? My granddad does not reply. He only looks out into the depths of the forest. We're atop a high hill and the trees give way to a view across a deep green valley. The sky is gray overhead. The man tuts and shakes his head. Steve, Steve isn't around much anymore. Oh, sorry, he's, he's not dead, is he? My granddad grimaces. I don't know exactly. You don't know? Look, just drop it, kid. It's a story for another day. Let's just get back to the campsite and cook that rabbit that we caught earlier. He pauses, putting out a hand and I stop at once, following his line of sight. I hadn't even spotted it, but it chills my blood to see it now. It gives me the shivers even remembering. We stand only a few feet away from a deer. It's one of these same deer as before, I'm sure of it. Neither of us had spotted it because the thing was standing eerily still, like a statue, a taxidermy almost. The heck, Grandad whispers, staring at the creature in surprise. He squints and then he leans over to me. It's breathing, though only barely. Look down there at its chest. I do so, taking the spectacle in. The deer has one hoofed foot placed against the trunk of a tree which in itself is quite curious already, but the animal does not move even slightly, and does not blink. Hey, my granddad barks and then louder. Hey, he claps his hands, but the deer does not react. Then, in time with a sudden flurry of water from the rain-soaked leaves above, the deer slowly turns its head, all the way around until it is staring at my granddad and myself, one eye on each. My stomach drops, Though I am unsure as to why. The deer is, I don't know, something is wrong. Uh, the thing must be sick. My granddad murmurs. We'll take a different way back. Go wide of this creature. We're too close already as it is. Yeah, I mumbled. And the two of us edge away in through the undergrowth. Taking a new direction as the deer watches us go, deathly silent. I shiver as it at last passes out of sight lost behind us to the watery green shadows of the forest. Later that night, after returning to camp and preparing and eating our catch, I bid my granddad goodnight and crawl into my tent, zipping the flaps up after me. I fumble around near the near darkness for a while, my lamp casting intense black shadows out in all directions as I shift it from place to place, trying to work my way into my sleeping bag. It doesn't feel particularly cold at the moment, but the temperature has the potential to suddenly drop at any given minute, and I don't want to wake up frozen solid at 3am. 
As it happens, I don't. I awake at 3.15, not frozen, but a slick with sweat. Roused from a dreamless slumber, my ears prick up at the sound of rustling and snuffling outside, right by my tent. I hold my breath and grit my teeth. It's this fear of the unknown that gets me. It's probably just a rabbit or a hare. But the possibility that it could be something larger, something more dangerous, is impossible to ignore. For some reason, my mind does not go to an image of a bear or a mountain lion or anything like that. It goes to the deer frozen in place, eyes unblinking, head turning as it watches my granddad and I pass by. Something presses up against the tent right by my head. I wince and stare at the bulging material through the darkness. I try not to think about the fact that I'm separated by the beasts of the forest by a pair of what are effectively thin, flimsy sheets of fabric. Just ignore it, I tell myself. Ignore it and it'll go away. I quietly roll over and scrunch up my eyes, determined to be a man and not get frightened by the presence of some raccoon or a squirrel. The creature sniffles some more, rustling about in the grass and in the dark. My heart rate increases as I hear the thing pawing against the tent's outer line, and then for a second it stops entirely, and to my horror I hear my granddad's voice. It's breathing, though only barely. The sentence comes a crisp and sharp through the general murmur and backing breeze of the forest. The sentence is entirely devoid of cadence, as if read from a book by someone who has never known English. Look down there at its chest, says the voice. Crap, crap. Panicking now, I do not know what I'm supposed to do. It's my granddad outside, playing a prank on me. I mean, it has to be, it must be. Because there is literally no other explanation that makes any sense. Regardless of the fact that this is entirely out of character, regardless of the fact that I have never heard the man speak in such a way, even in humor in his entire life. He must be sleepwalking. Yeah, that's it. My explosive heart rate cools just a little. That's it. It's the only possible explanation that makes sense. And if that's the case, then I can't just leave him to wander around outside. Despite my fear, I gently ease my way out of my sleeping bag. You might think me an idiot, but if my granddad is wandering around in the woods in a daze... He could get lost or seriously hurt. So I push aside my rational terror and with a shaking hand, I reach for the zip, pulling it open with a noise that is far too loud for comfort. Screw it. And for a penny and for a pound. I yank the zip open and then the next, and push my head out into the night, the cool air washing across my face as I raise the lantern to cast away the darkness. What I see is nothing. I jump outside of the tent staring, lifting the lantern as the light falls across the long grasses and to the nearby trees. We're still on the ridge of the valley, but the valley itself is shrouded in darkness. A small section of visible moon illuminates the very tip of the trees in silver, but I am too preoccupied to properly appreciate the natural beauty for now. I pace around the tent in a circle and see no evidence of my grandfather. Granddad, I hiss out into the night, turning and raising the lantern up high. 
still nothing. Something chirped softly from between the branches of the deep woods. I turned to face it with a throat dry, but the trees give away no secrets. I crossed the grass and crouched down by my granddad's tent. The zip remains closed. Granddad, I whispered, but to no response. I try again a little louder. Granddad. I hear a groan and a grumble from inside. Huh? I hear him mutter then. What do you want? Granddad, are you good? Of course I'm good. What's the matter with you? Alright, um, nothing. I'll see you tomorrow. He murmurs something under his breath and I hear the rustle of a sleeping bag as he rolls over. I stand up straight and stare out into the night. For a second time, that chirping sound rings out from the branches, and I make a hasty return to my tent, zipping the thing up tight and secure, shivering as I try to force myself back to sleep. It takes a long time, and I do not recall drifting off. My dreams are disturbing and are largely comprised of the discovery that something crept into my tent, dream distorted and warped into an impossible size. Then my dream self scrambles around from place to place, as a nightmare slithers and swims through these shadows like water. It is a welcome relief when I awake safe and sound, to the faded glare of tent-filtered morning sunlight shining into my face. Ugh, I mutter, sitting up straight and groggily rubbing my eyes. For a second or two, the reality of last night blurs into the dreams, but as I remember the truth... That bitterly familiar anxiety settles back in. I clamber out of the tent into the warming morning air to find my granddad, washing his face in a pot of water. Good morning, he grunts. How you feeling? Not great, to be honest, I reply. You were sleepwalking last night. Huh? Granddad glares up at me but continues with his routine. No, I don't sleepwalk. You were mumbling nonsense and bashing into my tent at like 3am, I tell him. I came to check on you, but you must have gone back to bed. My granddad pauses and looks right at me. So that did happen then. You're disturbing me. Thought that I might have dreamt it. He stands up and scratches his jaw. Tell me exactly what happened. I relay the story and my granddad remains silent until its end. Slightly pale, he looks around at her surroundings and down into the valley. I knew it, he mutters almost imperceptibly. It's the same place, the exact same place. What? I ask him. What do you mean? I came here with Steve once. I knew that I'd been here before. I thought I'd pick the location pretty randomly, but I guess my subconscious had other ideas. Granddad, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. He stares out over the valley and I follow his gaze. We watch as a small flock of dark birds flutter around in a circle above the trees. Again and again and again. Around and around they go. He turns to look straight at me, his expression grim, perhaps even afraid a little. And this unsettles me deeply. Nothing is supposed to scare that man. Back up, Robbie. Make it good and be quick. We're getting out of here. In another atmosphere, I might have questioned him, but the vibe is clear. I do as he says at once and in silence. We quickly pack away our gear, loading up our backpacks with constant, furtive glances to the trees. The forest has dried somewhat since yesterday's rain, 
but the sky overhead is still a swirl of gray. We set out beneath its gloom, all trace of our modest campsite thoroughly erased. My granddad's pace is a little faster than normal. Bracken pine needles are crunched underfoot as he strides through the woodlands. He clenches his rifle a little tighter, too. I break the tension. Granddad, what is going on? Why aren't you telling me? I was an idiot once before, Granddad replies, as a breeze whistles its way through the boughs of the trees. And I lost a good friend. I can let the same thing happen to you. We push through the bushes and pass by a large pond surrounded by thick, tangled weeds. I glance over to the water. The water is a grim, gray-green and covered in a curious floating moss. The surface is broken by the heads of three deer standing perfectly still. The entirety of their bodies below the necks are submerged, and they stare at us as we pass them by. On another day, I might have found this sight quite comical, but right now I feel nothing but cold, biting fear. One of the deer rises up from the water, rippling it quietly, rearing up onto its hind legs and my granddad. He grabs my sleeve and hauls me along. Don't stop moving. We're getting out of here. Just keep going, Robbie. Our steps become faster, our breathing a little more labored. The trees rush by, branches scratching my arms and my face. We push out into a clearing and my granddad skids to an immediate halt. What is it? I ask, panting. Something moves in the shadows of the trees, shifting between the branches at the clearing's opposite side. The hair on the back of my neck bristles and I instinctively raise the rifle. The sounds of the birds in the breeze fade away, and the air itself seems to darken as the shifting shadow ahead draws closer. It is difficult, near impossible, to make out its exact shape through the layers of branch and foliage, but I swear that I can see a rough, vaguely humanoid silhouette amongst the shadows in the dark, green-brown blur. Did you come back for me, Robert? Whispers a voice. My muscles tense up in reaction to my name. Is it my name that it speaks or is it my granddad's? My granddad sucks some air in through his teeth. He begins to carefully sidestep his way around the clearing and I copy his movements. You wouldn't leave me behind again, would you? The voice is not dissimilar to the one that I heard last night. It is different, sure, but the cadence or lack thereof is much the same. My granddad raises the rifle and cocks it, but he does not fire. Keep going around, kid, he says to me. To the left. Pass through that part of the clearing there. I'll be right behind you. I start to edge my way around the clearing, never taking my eye off the shadow in the trees just ahead. I'm trying so hard to focus on it, to understand what it is that I'm seeing, but I can't. The very branches themselves seem to be moving, cracking and rippling in the shade. The figure takes a sudden step forward. Run, my granddad shouts, raising the rifle and firing a loud shot up into the air. Unprepared for such a sudden noise, my ears ring as I scramble and stumble through the forest, along a natural path of sorts between the trees. Though I stumble to a halt when I realize my granddad is not behind me. He told me to run, but do I go back for him? I mean, I have to. It's a no-brainer. 
and so I swivel around and prepare to charge back to the clearing when the man himself staggers out through the bushes towards me, face as white as a sheet. Get that thing out of my face, you idiot. He grunts as he shoves away the barrel of my rifle, and together we race through the forest. My granddad dumps his backpack and I do likewise, leaving the equipment behind as we tear through the undergrowth way back to where we parked the truck the other day. When at last we see it, waiting for us on the edge of a dirt track road, we throw ourselves inside and my granddad stuffs in the key and turns it with a clang, the engine revving into life. The wheels spin and away we go back through the wilds down the long back roads of the woodlands. I summon the courage after a while and once the air is cool to ask my granddad what he saw, what happened after he had fired the rifle. Uh, the thing tried to speak to me again. The deep woods, Robbie. I'm sorry for taking you there. They can screw with a man's mind at these places real, real bad. There was something there, though, wasn't there? Uh, something real? Yeah, I think so. Oh, was it? I falter. Who was it, Granddad? A nightmare, that's all. Something that shouldn't exist by the laws of all nature. Its voice. Did you recognize the voice? You said you heard something outside your tent last night, right? I nod. It sounded like me. Yeah, I reply. But it wasn't me, was it? No, I reply. No, it wasn't. Sometimes we hear voices that don't mean they belong to anyone. So why didn't you shoot it? What? His hands flex and clench around the wheel. You fired the rifle, but you aimed it up into the air, not at the shadow. Why did you do that? To this, my granddad had no answer. He only reaches briefly across to pat my shoulder, and as the clouds swirl overhead, we spend the rest of the long drive home in a contemplative silence. Silence with the occasional glance to the thickets of trees that pass us by. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it and I hope that you have a great Halloween. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.